Oh, wait, I never Googled. What does vicissitudes mean? It is the quality or state of being changeable, natural change or mutation visible in nature or in human affairs, or two, the second definition is a favorable or unfavorable event or situation that occurs by chance. Usually beyond one's control. Mm. Bates changes is, would be a better <coughs> title then, maybe. I don't know. Maybe it'd be a better title for people like me who don't know big words. <laughs> Welcome back to another episode of Is Fitz Happy. I'm Luke. And I'm Emma. And this week we're discussing chapter 28, Vicissitudes. And this is taking place right after Wintrow is in the uh, cage, hoping that Torg would tell his father <laughs> to buy him <laughs> or to right. pay, oh, well, not buy him yet, but pay off his debt so Wintrow would go free. And he was hoping slash fearing that outcome, but thankfully it was taken out of his hands so here we are, and he is getting dragged to the slave block, and it's not really real to him because he's like, but Torg would definitely tell my father he wouldn't play a mean prank, quote unquote prank. Yeah. So what's really interesting about this is I think I remembered this as Torg definitely told Kyle, and Kyle was like, let's save a few bucks and try to auction him back oh no but um that is not what happened Torg just didn't tell Kyle um and we'll talk about why later but I definitely I think in one of our previous episodes actually the last one with Torg in it I think I made a comment about the foreshadowing of Kyle's horrible parentage so I think Kyle gets a break from being a bad dad for this aspect because he actually didn't know I, I will say in general Kyle is obviously a very horrible person. Yes. He's not a great father to any of his kids. No. But he would be a lot more tolerable and better as a parent if Torg was not there. Especially with regards to Wintrow. Uh. He does egg him along. Torg makes little sly comments that make Kyle angrier at Wintrow. When he's already angry, like I said, he doesn't absolve him of... Right, you know any of his horrible <laughs> attitudes beforehand, but as again, as we learn later, Torg is the one who makes the suggestion and pokes Kyle into getting the vivacia tattooed on Wintro when he sold into slavery. Like it's it's all kind of Torg's prodding. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I guess that goes into the deep dive of how we think of morals. Maybe differently, because I feel like if Kyle has the capacity to be this awful, then just because Torg is there doesn't mean that without Torg, he would be better. I think he probably, especially because this is a book character, this isn't real life. I think Kyle is just always going to be a trash person and a bad parent. <laughs> yeah, but that that inherently asks the question what do you think is better because I, if Torg wasn't there I think Kyle 100% is better I mean it doesn't I, mean that he's good <laughs> it doesn't even mean that of, he's I don't know I think what kind of captain doesn't know the type of person he has as his second mate 
like how incompetent at your job do you have to be to not know how horrible things are, even when it's your own son? Like I get that at some at some level, Kyle is trying to distance himself from his son and trying to be this like, well, you're not getting special treatment from me, even though I'm going to give you the business in two years. There's still some level of like, he's really uninvolved if he does not see anything bad in what Torg has been doing. And I get that there's like this weird, like bro culture on ships where there is some like bullying (laughs) that happens to new people on the boats. Like that seems to be pretty normal in boats, but how does he not know the horrible treatment going on? Like, it's not just little things. And Wintrow ended up losing a finger because of the mistreatment. And Kyle still has no idea. I don't know. It just feels like Kyle is really inept at his job. And that's not know. what I'm saying would change, though. Yeah. <laughs> I'm but saying like, that things wouldn't be as bad for Wintrow if Torg wasn't there. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. I mean, obviously. <laughs> He just kind of is that kind of mean-spirited person who is the lowest of the low that pushes things along. So obviously he has not told Kyle. You know, yeah, that's fair. And I think it's really funny when I think about it because I was so hard on Efren Vesterit. And like, yeah, I don't even, I, <laughs> I don't even, con- like, Efren is a great person. I'm nitpicking because everybody gives him the benefit of the doubt because everybody describes him as great. And like, I've kind of come around Everybody wins. Efren's great. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I was so like, what are you talking about? (laughs) I'm just trying to push back against the narrative that he's perfect. That's all I was trying to do, which may not have been clear, but it's fine. I feel like it is not even a competition between Efren and Kyle. Like the things I was nitpicking Efren for are more like, since you're so good of a parent, why didn't you do better? Like, (laughs) whereas Kyle, it's like, of course he didn't do good. He's a trash person. I don't have any expectations of him. So he's not breaking any of my expectations. And so I don't know. So, ugh. That's one thing that's frustrating and yet great to read about Robin Hobb is because since they are all people, even somebody who sees one chapter of screen time face to face and is just talked about otherwise has significant flaws. Yeah. No, I love that about it. Yeah. So, as we were saying, Torg did not tell Kyle. The decision technically was still in Wintrow's hands. He could have sent a message to the ship. See, okay, I've been thinking about that since I've read this chapter and just been mulling over, like, why wouldn't he have just in case? He knows Torg is a trash person. He knows Torg is going to be awful. When nobody came that night, why didn't he have somebody run? But then I thought about it, and even if he would have, would the guy have sent somebody he already knows. I think so because it's it's a lot of money that he's proposing because it's a fine for killing somebody that the satrap owns, right? So it was like twelve silver, and he gets sold later for like nine or something like that, and that was driving the price up high, right? For an educated young slave, right? But I'm I'm saying they know that he and Torg know each other, and that Torg said he was gonna. So at that point. Would they trust Wintrow to be like... Mm, at that point, maybe. I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, would they be like, yeah, of course we'll send another person just in case. I'm sure they'd be like, you don't trust your betters or whatever. You know? I don't know. It just wasn't even in the cards for him to do it because of the last chapter and how he ended. Right. He was so indecisive. He he wanted everything taken out of his hands. And with Torg coming along, he's like, okay, good. I don't have to make that decision. 
So yes, he technically could have, and maybe it would or would not have been sent the message, but he wouldn't have even gotten to that point because he was just like, okay, Saw provided it's done. I don't have to make the decision. Yeah. And that's a very good uh, example of why no choice is still a choice. (laughs) Yeah. Pretending like it's not doesn't benefit you in any way. (laughs) So he's sitting here in disbelief because the way that he was hoping it would turn out did not come to pass as the handlers quite easily maneuver him over to a tattooist block put him into, you know, an area to be tattooed and manacled and chained down so he doesn't move around and mess it up. And the tattooist, of course, is very matter-of-fact, professional about his job. And Wintro is reciting, you know, litanies and prayers to Sa, probably words from their holy texts saying, my flesh was not made by me. I will not puncture it to bear jewelry, nor stain my skin, nor embed a decoration into my visage. For I am a creation of Sa, made as I am intended to be. My flesh is not mine to write upon. He had scarce breath enough to quote the holy writ as a whisper. But he spoke the words and prayed the man would hear them. The tattooist spat to one side, spittle stained with blood. A hard addict, then, of Sindon, as it was mentioned before, one who would indulge in the drug even when his mouth was raw with ulcers. Taint my flush to mark either, he exclaimed with dim humor. It's the satraps. Now, his sigil I could do blindfolded. You hold still, it goes faster and smarts less. My father is coming to pay for me, he fought for air to say these essential words. Your father is too late. Hold still. And so he gets the satraps sigil tattooed next to his nose in green ink. Also, there's a point where he misses the first jab and pokes his nose instead and then is like, oops, and then goes back to tattooing, which is crazy. (laughs) But I guess they're letting the man do send it on the job. So how high are the quality of life standards here for people getting tattooed? (laughs) They're slaves. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't really matter, I guess. And it's so sad. I think this whole section of Wintro going through this it is just becoming clearer and clearer that even though we touch the surface of how bad things are, we literally watched a person beg for death in the streets. We still are seeing worse and worse. Like there is so much to this situation. There is so much depth of horribleness, I guess. It's just, I don't know. It felt like at some point it can't get worse. You can't, keep learning new things about how this is how this operates and keep feeling shocked and disturbed and yet every new sentence something different is happening and you're just like oh my gosh this is horrendous right and so he's led away with a new tattoo next to his nose claiming that he is property to a different stall in a different row a different shed and He is shackled to the ground, pinned to the ground with some other people in that same stall. And he asks, what happens next? A tall, skinny youth picked his nose with a dirty finger. We get sold, he said sarcastically, and we're slaves the rest of our lives, unless you kill someone and get away. He was sullenly defiant, but Wintro heard it was only words. Words were all that were left of his resistance. The others seemed not even to have that much. They stood or sat or leaned and waited for whatever would happen to them next. 
Wintrow recognized the state. Severely injured people fell into it. Left to themselves, they would simply sit and stare and sometimes shiver. I can't believe it. I can't believe Torg didn't tell my father. Then he wondered why he'd ever expected that Torg would. What was the matter with him? Why had he been so stupid? He'd trusted his fate to a sadistic, brutal idiot. Why hadn't he sent word for his father? Why hadn't he told the keeper the first day? Come to think of it, why had he fled the ship? Had it really been so bad there? At least there had been an end in sight, a two-year wait to his deliverance from his father. Now there was no end to it. And he would not have the vivacia to sustain him. The thought of her brought a terrible pang of loneliness welling up in him. He'd betrayed her, and he'd sent himself into slavery. This was real. He was a slave now, now and forever. So, yeah, this is becoming too real for Wintrow. Finally Ob- sinking in, yeah. Yeah, and I think what goes into that and how nobody really deserves to be a slave, but on the other hand, he is 15. So, he's, of course, he doesn't know. He's just about, he's like 14 or newly turned 14. Oh, I thought he says he's 15 in the next. No, oh, be- okay. because when he turns 15, he could declare himself free from his father as like an oh, independent. Right, and that's right. the two year wait that he's talking about on Vivacia. Though 14 year- years old is old enough to start having more complex grasp of worldviews. It's a little bit harder when you've been so sheltered and also you're still a child and you have not experienced the world enough to know more. And so I feel like that makes me a lot more sympathetic to him because, again, he is 14 and this is happening to him. It's it's very interesting because we started this book with Wintrow being the most emotionally intelligent yeah. of all the characters. <laughs> Oof. And as we go into the book, we see that Robin Hobbs set them up, each of them, each of these characters, for immense growth. And this is what faces Wintrow, his naivety, as you mentioned, Emma. And his just conceptual knowledge of everything doesn't line up perfectly with the world, which we were warned about from Berendal, his other priest friend who was guiding him. Right. That his knowledge is book knowledge. He, it was all theoretical. It was all like, this is so black and white and easy because I live in a place where I'm never tempted, where evil things never really happen. I just hear about them. And then we see Wintrow going through the unspeakable things and finally confronting his faith and why things happen and the attitudes of other men. And it's just him being in shock. Right. And his world rocking as a 14-year-old young boy. It's very hard to confront for him. Right. And I think it's easy to get carried away, especially with Wintrow, because he is kind of the most mature (laughs) character. He is very mature for his age. And he it's like really easy to forget just how young he is, I think. But then moments like this, you really are reminded that, wow, this 14 year old's life has changed forever. And he didn't even realize that this was a danger of something that could happen. And it's sad. Yeah. So now he's thinking about the past. Like, why did I make the choices I did? It would have been so easy to just wait upon Vivacia, who at this moment is disconsolately rocking in the harbor, extremely sad with the sawing and the hammering and the final finishing touches of the retrofitting of her hold completed. Right. I also want to mention this. 
because it specifically says her, like you said, that the slave holdings is just finished, that now they can leave. And so I wanted to make the mention that Kyle Haven specifically said the day that Wintrow ran away that he was costing them time and that they would lose out on the best slaves to buy at the market now. It's all his fault. And there's been a couple things before this where where I've questioned that. Like, if there's slave markets all the time, how is he missing out? And, you know, questions like that. But this especially, it's been, what, six days now, maybe seven And they're just now ready to be able to onboard slaves onto the ship. So why was he even going to go out and buy first day anyway? Why was that the make or break day? And it feels like another layer of like, what? Like, why, why was he so upset, way more upset about losing out on slavery sales than he was his own son when he couldn't even house the slaves? Yeah, I guess that's true. (laughs) But as we've seen, like they have been purchasing all of these days. It's just, they all get shipped and onboarded when the ship is ready so they've purchased they're holding them other places and they'll get them later but i think specifically one it's kyle so he's awful and he's thinking about profits two he needs to find a reason to be really mad at wintro because yeah that is frustrating to have your son run away into a giant city if you were a normal person right you'd also be worried and number three he does lose some time i guess if you look at it that way, because he had to hear that story and think of a plan instead of just going directly and being early to the slave auctions. And we find out later that he does get some artisans and some valuable slaves, but he doesn't get as many as he wanted to. Uh, So maybe it's just, as we discussed before, maybe he was just optimistic about filling his whole hold with those kinds of slaves maybe because Torg is there definitely pushed to be more cruel and get the uh the ballast map face slaves or maybe he tried really hard and just the market's bad for him like he can't buy as many right well they we know that they're poor so i can't imagine he has a ton of money to work with and if i had to guess the price of a person (laughs) i'm guessing that the more the less tattoos on a person's face, the more expensive they are overall. So with how little he does care about his son, he did offer him a gold to get him back. <laughs> well, he started with like what, like five coppers or something. Well, that for the bidding. Yes. But I'm saying like when they first learned that Wintro ran oh, away, true, 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 offering true. what a half a gold for information and a gold if he got returned or something. That's well, true. That's quite a few. That's, that's quite a bit. Maybe. <laughs> we have no idea. <laughs> Again, with the money thing, I can't. <laughs> There's some more money in this one, too. We'll talk about more. But Vivacia is, of course, extremely lonely, sad. She is rocking herself in the harbor. And tomorrow, she says her human cargo would be ferried out to her and she would sail away from Jamelia alone. Wintro was gone. Serpents would be her companions from now on. Last night, when the rest of the harbor was still, a small one had risen to slink about among the anchored slavers. When it came to her, it had lifted its head above the water to gaze at her warily. Something about its stare had closed her throat tight with terror. She had not even been able to call the watch. If Wintro had been aboard, at least someone would have sensed her fear and come to her. She dragged her thoughts free of him. Loss clawed at her heart, and she denied it. She refused it all. 
She's trying to put herself at ease. But Gantry comes up to the foredeck and asks her, Could you please stop that? It's unnerving the whole crew. We're two hands short today. They didn't come back from Liberty, and I think it's because you frightened them off. Frightened? What was so frightening about isolation and loneliness and serpents no one else ever saw? Vivacia? I'm going to have Findo come play his fiddle for you. I've got Liberty myself today for a few hours, and I promise you I'll spend every moment of it looking for Wintrow. I promise you that. Did they think it would make her happy? If they found Wintrow and dragged him back to her, forced him to serve her, did they think that she would be content and docile? Kyle would believe that. That was how Kyle had brought Wintrow aboard her in the first place. Kyle understood nothing of the willing heart. And again, Gantry is here. Vivacia, please, can you please stop rocking? Every other ship in the harbor is still. Please. And she's saying that she felt sorry for Gantry, or she's thinking this, still not answering him. He was a good mate and a very able seaman. None of this was his fault. He shouldn't have to suffer for it. But then, neither should she. So she is obviously in a very rough spot mentally right now. Yeah, this is the most volatile I think we've seen her. And it's really interesting because this feels the closest to Paragon that we've seen from her since we started. Considering we only have the inside working of these two live ships, it's kind of funny how somewhat similar they are. In a lot of ways, which I guess funny isn't the right word. Sad, maybe. Isn't it just typical Hob that the characters that we see inside of are the ones that go through the most trauma? Yeah. Why couldn't she give us like (laughs) Gantry? I'm sure Gantry has a nice day most of the time whenever this isn't going on. Ophelia or something, you know, or Tarman. We kind of hear some Tarman thoughts later on. (laughs) Yeah, but uh, I don't know. It would be great if I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's a it, lot. W- it would be great to not have to deal with so much sadness. <laughs> but we're here and Vivacia is sad and yeah. she's lonely and she's trying to put up this front of, I can take care of myself. It's fine. I don't need anybody, which is not a great response to have to being lonely. And instead of asking for help, she's taking it on as a fault of her own, which I think is probably a little bit of the vestrit in her to not want to reach out for help and instead want to, you know, take it all on herself. I also do think though, that this attitude of, I don't need anybody else is because of how fresh and new she is. Yeah. And young, I guess. Yeah. And she is kind of forced into that attitude as well, because she says right after I am losing myself And then kind of rephrase it saying, it's not so hard when I know someone is coming back, but when I don't, it suddenly gets harder to hold on to who I am. I start thinking, no, not thinking. Almost like a dream, but we live ships cannot sleep. But it's like a dream, and in the dream, I'm someone else. Something else. And the serpents touch me, and that makes it worse. I feel like because she lost her touchstone in Wintrow, and because, as you said, she's so new... She has to find out who she is, and that feeling of abandonment isn't something that live ships ever should go through, really. Right. But I. not only that, I think this really helps explain why there has to be someone of the blood on the ship. 
or at least somebody with a connection strong enough and deep enough. And I think that blood helps make that connection instinctual and quick. Right. And well, I think the, well, I guess, I don't know, Paragon ends up sailing without anyone of his blood. But yeah, I think just somebody that you are connected with in that way, whether it's through just blood or a deeper connection, helps stave off the dragon memories. Yeah. And I wonder if the older live ship families knew that this is why the first voyage with a newly awoken live ship is the most important. And that's why there's such a big emphasis on making sure that the first voyage goes really smoothly for your ship and trying not to do anything that could harm it. Because I know that Ronica makes comments about how Kyle knows nothing about our traditions. This is supposed to be the most important trip and he's going to put slaves on a newly awakened live ship. Like it's crazy. And that maybe where it comes from, but again, we don't like, no one really knows that secret besides some of the Rainwild families and hardly anybody knows that Rainwild traders exist. That's true. So maybe not. I feel like it might, maybe it started with that. And that's why the emphasis from the Rainwild or excuse me, from the live ship traders, the Bingtown traders who got the ships, why that emphasis was there and started like a tradition. Right. Like that's but, the root of the tradition. Right. But I don't know if anybody actually knows the cause anymore. That's fair. Yeah. That's, I think that was what I was trying to say. I just didn't do it well, <laughs> but yeah. So it's just really interesting to see this where we get the insight that the losing of oneself happens when they don't know somebody is going to come back for sure, which explains why Paragon kind of went mad all right. those years. I mean, after the first time back where he was newly awakened, there was no guarantee anybody was coming back to sail him. And then the second and third time too, it's when he comes back to that Harbor alone, there's no guarantee anyone's coming back. And that uncertainty doesn't help when he has two dragons fighting for consciousness. Right. And it's kind of not going to say, well, I am going to say worse, but I don't think it's actually worse than Paragon's situation, but it's very bad for Vivacia because she was made out of a cocoon of she who remembers the serpents call to her and are trying to like bugle at her saying like, Hey, you're supposed to lead us. Yeah. So there's that added layer maybe. Right. That, That's why the serpents terrify her so much. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure on some level it's because there's some familiarity there. And why would there be familiarity there? Right. Because she doesn't know. Do you, do you think, this is a random question that I just had. Do you think that somewhat, on some level live ships know that they are the cocoon of dragons? Or do you think they don't know until they're told? I feel like on some level, yes, but as Vivacia describes it, it's not quite like a dream. It's just very submerged subconscious memories that are being surfaced. So like she talks about, I think Paragon actually talks about being, you know, the master of the sky and the seas or something at Mm -hmm. one point before he sailed with uh, Brashen. So I I feel like they kind of know, but it takes a lot for that to be unearthed. Right. So the fastest way is just to tell them. (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. But Gantry doesn't believe her about serpents here either. 
And it's it's something that gets brushed aside often. Right. And she's like, well, if Wintro were here, he would feel them too and know I wasn't being foolish. Right. Because Gantry is saying, you know, nobody else has seen any signs of them. It's all in your head. It's fine. It's like, I think you might be mistaken. And then he, his voice takes on a cajoling tone as if she were a nervous child. Maybe there are serpents down there, but if there are, what can we do about them? They're not hurting us. I think we should just both ignore them, don't you? She just turns and stares at him and says, I'm not mad, Gantry. It is hard for me to be alone like this, but I'm not crazy. Maybe I'm even seeing things more clearly than I used to. Seeing things my own way, not a vestrit way. Her efforts to explain only confused him. Well, of course. Um, he looked away from her. Gantry, you're a good man. I like you. She almost didn't say the words, but then she did. You should get onto a different ship. She could smell the sudden fear in his sweat when he spoke to her. Now, what other ship could compare to you? He asked her hastily. After sailing aboard you, why would I want to take ship on another? False hardiness in his voice. Maybe because you want to live, she said in a very low voice. I have a very bad feeling about this voyage. A very bad feeling. Especially if I must make it alone. Don't talk like that, he said roughly. And then in a calmer voice, he offered, You won't be alone. I'll be here with you. I'll go and tell Findau to come fiddle for you, shall I? She shrugged. She had tried. After a while, he went away. So again... Is Fivatia prophetic? No idea. She does give him a real warning. As rereaders, we know Gantry is going to die on this voyage. Yeah. He has a bad feeling about it. Maybe as prophetic as most other people, plus her, she who remembers, is kind of more memories than most because it's all of the dragon memories. They That's carry true. all of the memories. Just those few do. So all those memories have to have some sort of knowledge, right? Like, <laughs> Yeah, that's fair. I don't know. It's just so interesting that she is once again warning somebody of something that does happen. Yeah. But she's here and it freaks Gantry out. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, if a talking ship would already be a little freaky. And then if it turned around, looked me in my eyes and said, you might want to find a different ship if you want to live. I'd be like, okay, bye. <laughs> Never seeing you again. This right. is the worst day of my life. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, well, no, it's, um, it's definitely interesting. And it just shows how lonely and sad Vivacia is and has gotten at this point. And it's only been seven days without Wintro. Max. But knowing that he won't come back. True. So. You know, I keep saying seven. I feel like it's probably been six. I don't remember. There I were, think they say the days, but. There are five days where he sits in the jail cell before going to the slave block to become a slave. Okay. So this so is like this the is sixth, sixth day. day. Okay. and the, Or maybe on the fifth. I don't know. Whatever. Either but one. Yeah. But he had one day of running away before he got there. So six to seven. We don't know. And then we move on to Althea, who is at this moment interviewing with Captain Tanira of Ophelia in a Candletown uh, Inn, a tavern. She saw Ophelia in the harbor. Her heart leapt in her chest to see a reminder of home. 
and probably snapped her out of whatever funk she was in before and saw this as an opportunity to get home. At least, you know, her options before her are either convince Captain Tanira to hire on as a ship's boy, or this is a safe person where she could reveal who she is and beg passage back home on. So she followed him to this tavern and is kind of laying before like, hey, please hire me on. (laughs) Right. And I think what's really impressive about this is the last time that we saw Althea, she was very down in the dumps about her situation and feeling very much dejected and like there's no point in her being a sailor anymore because it didn't seem to matter what her skills or talents were if she's going to be seen as just a woman anyway. Right. And so she was kind of feeling, it kind of seemed, we left her, it kind of seemed as though she was going to drink away all her money and she was going to then give up on sailing altogether. But that's not what she did. Yeah. She is a little bit more responsible than Brashen, as we'll see in a little bit here. (laughs) Yeah. She seems to have money left over and she's been trying to spend as little as possible And she's trying first to be a ship's boy again. Yeah. Saying that she doesn't need to get paid. She'll just work for her passage over, which is suspicious, obviously, and probably intrigues Captain Tanira. Right. He wants to know a little bit more. Yep. Basically saying she got her wages aboard her last ship. She just wants to go back home, give her money to her, you know, mother. Every day she spends in Candletown is more money out of her pocket. So please just give me an opportunity to go back home. I'll work for my way over. And Captain Tanira is like, that's admirable, but I still have to feed you. And, you know, a live ship's different than your normal shipping thing. So it's a little bit different. And Ophelia, who I'm sailing with, can be a willful lady. Althea bit her lips to suppress a smile. The Ophelia was one of the oldest live ships, the first generation, as it were. She was a blowsy old cog, body and lewd when the mood took her, and patrician and commanding at other times. A willful lady is the kindest way she had ever heard Ophelia described. So lots of gossip going on. (laughs) It makes me wonder how much the live ship trader families know about each other's like ships and moods like how often are they in contact with the other live ships and what is the gossip like about (laughs) what the personalities are that's what i want to know i feel like it would just be a social passing like oh i talked to you and this is how i think you are but it feels like the old traders keep everything pretty secretive even amongst themselves right yeah so probably not any in-depth knowledge i don't think they're taking people along sailing with them from other families typically yeah very often or those people are not trying to have a connection with right. the live ship <laughs> right definitely but it does make me wonder if they host parties on the live ships because i think that'd be a very cool setting for parties yeah for sure with the live ships getting to join in too so that they're not alone <laughs> Probably not, but maybe. Well, we get a little tidbit here that she is among the first generation of live ships. So she is extremely old. Uh, We know Tarman was the first. I don't believe that she was the first awakened with a figurehead. I think that's somebody else's title. Right. But she is extremely old, probably around the same age as Bingtown. And that's quite a ways back. Right. A few hundred years, maybe. Yeah. So it's really interesting. And she's part of the first generation. We don't know how many generations there are, but we do know right. that... We, there's Vi- no real way to judge of generation either. Right. <laughs> right. But we do know that the Vivacia is the newest of all the ships. She's, yes. So she's the last of the live ships. 
and as we can it were. we can assume with three captains about ninety years old, right? You know, thirty years per captain, maybe a little bit longer for Althea's great grandmother, mm-hmm. a little bit shorter for Efren. So the captain is like, live ships are different. They're different than than slaughter ships. Right. And he also mentions that she can't be superstitious if she's going to work aboard yeah. a live ship. You which, can't let her bully you either. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I think it's a very important distinction because as we know, live ships can feel the crew, like feel their feelings. And as a captain of a live ship, he would know this. And so you would want to be very careful of who you're letting on your ship, even if it's just a boy, because you don't want somebody and somebody's bad vibes to rub off on your ship and ruin the trip. Right. Yeah. So I think that's a super important thing. And Althea has a really good response. You know, she says that she actually isn't superstitious. She loves live ships. She spent a lot of time talking to them when she was a boy. And I think this is what pushes over her being able to be on the ships, right? There has to be a lot of people who hate live ships because they're an abomination, right? Right. Or at least are scared of them. Right. And saying that she's not is probably a plus in her in her corner. Right. And I mean, if you think about it in this world, especially sailors are superstitious. And I could imagine if you're not from Bingtown or even if you are, some of them still not willing to sail aboard something that's alive. Yeah, for sure. And we can see that her prowess in... You know, social encounters here. She's being deferent in the right places. She's offering the right responses, being truthful, but still being exact in how she talks to this man in this interview. And ultimately, the captain is considering because of those pluses, just basically saying, if I took you on, you'd be really lucky. People jump at the chance to serve on a live ship, people more experienced than you. And Althea says, I know, I appreciate that. And Captain Tanira says, see that you do. I'm a hard master, Athel. You may regret this before we reach Bingtown. Begging your pardon, sir, but I'd heard that about you, that you was hard but fair. She'd let her eyes meet his again. I don't fear to work for a fair man. It was just enough, honey. The captain almost smiled. Go and report to the mate, then. His name's Greg Tanira. Tell him I've hired you on and that you want to chip rust on the, on the anchor chain. Yes, sir, Althea replied with just enough of a grimace. Thank you, sir. So she is feeling gleeful walking out of this. She passed the test. He didn't recognize her, and she got hired on. Right. And now the next test will be seeing if his son, Greg, sorry, Greg. <laughs> it's an A, not an E. <laughs> yeah, it's close, though. Whatever. Greg. <laughs> Greg. She wants to know if Greg will be able to recognize her because Greg is her age. Yep. And he's asked her to dance before at the few balls and dances and and meetings that they've gone to. So, which kind of implies that he's kind of soft on her. Right. He is the best guy out of this series. I know. It's so hard because I don't want to say that I don't like her and Brashen together, but I don't like her and Brashen together. <laughs> I mean, I guess they grow into great a great couple and Brashen has a long way to go from where he is right now. But I love her and Greg together. I think Greg is such a sweetheart. And there were, I do remember that there's like a little bit of issue because he wouldn't have let her go after Vibatia or he wasn't super keen to 
get the vivacia back for her, but he was willing to let her sail with him. And I think that's kind of a big deal because that's not very traditional and he would have let her be on board. The Tanira family, specifically Greg, does stand up for the Vestrits later on mm-hmm. and really do kind of support them. Yeah. Even when they're not very popular as a family with their familiarity with David Restart. Yes. And you know what? I think that is really important to remember that like, yeah, obviously he's going to have flaws, but I don't know. Overall, I think he, he has a good good heart. Yeah. Yeah. He's a good guy. (laughs) Well, she was confident that she could get past Greg as well. And Ophelia is leaving tomorrow. So she's very excited to be going home again. Mixed feelings because she's missing Vivacia, obviously. There would be no bond. But on the other hand, it would be nice for her to be on a live ship again. She turned her feet towards the rundown inn where she had been staying. She'd board Ophelia tonight and sail tomorrow. There wasn't time to find Brashen and bid him farewell. She had no idea where he was. Why, for all she knew, he might have shipped out again by now. Besides, what was the point? She'd go her way, he'd go his... That was simply how it was. She had no real connection to the man at all. None at all. She didn't even know why she was thinking about him. Certainly there was nothing left to say to him. And seeing him again would only bring up difficult words and topics. Lying to herself. Yeah. So (laughs) clearly this is her trying to make herself feel better about the fact that she's not going to see Brashen after that and they ended so weird and it's fine. I'm fine. I don't need him anyway, which is very reminiscent of where we just left Vivacia and how she was thinking about Wintrow. Yeah, definitely. She's kind of very, she's forced into the, I have to be independent. So I am feeling more independent mindset. Vivacia was, and that's just kind of echoed in this section. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting take and, it's it's always fun to see how things get mirrored in these books. It's very Robin Hobb. Yeah, the, the this chapter specifically has a lot of different sections in it, different viewpoints, and some things do kind of link together quite well, like this next section with Brashen. We see him comparable in, in a comparable situation in an interview for a position on a ship, and he is not doing so well. We kind of go into that. He's interviewing for a mate first mate position on spring eve which is a merchant ship with an agent on the uh, harbor docks and he is hungover and not feeling good he hasn't eaten in at least a day yep he's been sleeping outside he is uh has a strong headache and the guy inside is smoking a pipe with some nasty smoke that he's blowing all over the it's place. Yellow smoke. So yep. it's definitely not normal tobacco. <laughs> not that that would be any better in your face if you're super hungover or even just sober. <laughs> right. But uh, this guy, this agent is very full of himself with importance. He loves his position of power right now. And he's just kind of lording that in this position. He's going back and forth about, you know, it's a big responsibility and I don't know if we can take you on and for what pay. He's just mincing his words, going around everything, uh, going around all the topics and Brashen is just not feeling it. He's very blunt as opposed to Althea in the previous section. Right. It's really interesting because it seems as though this act of hiring a new person on a ship is a very artfully done 
thing, much like a lot of things we see the sailors do, there's a lot of tradition and like dance to what's going on there. It doesn't really matter that they both know it's a game. It's a game that has to be played. Right. And Brashen isn't playing very well. He is interjecting when he shouldn't be interjecting. He's being too blunt and he's not really able to pass it off as uh, purposeful, I guess. <laughs> yeah, he's he, straight facing and he's trying to say these things. He's saying them too bluntly and then smiles afterwards to try to soften that blow. Right. When but he's I, just blurting out things. Yeah, and I do also want to mention that the ship, the Spring Eve, is kind of a shady, shady ship. <laughs> it is a little bit treacherous. It seems as though Brashen doesn't know for sure, but he can gather that the merchandise that the merchant ship is ferrying and selling is coming from pirates that they have stolen from other people. Yeah. So it's a small shallow draft trading vessel that worked her way up and down the coast between Candletown and Bingtown. The cargo she picked up or let off in each town determined her next port of call. That was how the agent delicately explained it. And to Brashen, like you said, it sounded suspiciously like it was stolen goods. Right. Which, as we know as rereaders, it is stolen goods. They do work with pirates, and that's how Brashen does find out that the Vivacia was taken over by pirates because the painting from Althea that she commissioned ends up in one of the deals with the Spring Eve captain. And he accompanies the captain on those deals as the first mate. But he doesn't really care at this point. He doesn't really want to do that work. He doesn't want to get involved with pirates again, as we find out. But he also just needs to work because he's out of money. He doesn't want to do any work at all, but he's out of money, almost out of Sindon. And he just has to work. And this berth and this ship is as good as any. Right, which is honestly the most relatable thing he's ever said. <laughs> I don't think anybody wants to work, but yet here we all are. <laughs> he bluntly asks, what, what could you pay me? And the man still is dancing around things. He's kind of offended by the bluntness that Brashen is showing. And eventually the agent says, well, you have your ticket from the Reaper, but nothing to show for the other experience you claim. I'll need to think about this. And Brashen says, okay. When will you know if you want me? Another thing that was said too bluntly. And the agent replies, possibly by early morning. Brashen, of course, is getting upset with this runaround that he's getting. He's not in the mood to uh, have that dance right, right now. And the agent is already kind of dismissing him. He's like, okay, Brashen says, I'll, I'll check in with you tomorrow morning then, whatever. And he's getting up to go. But he's anxious because he's going to have to spend another day outside, another day without food. Right. And as he's going, the mate or the man tells him that, yes, he'll, he should come by, but be ready to sail if we decide to pick you. And that is the straw that breaks the camel's back. And Brashen says, that is swash. You won't sway, say if you want me or how much you'll pay me, but I should be on my toes to leave if you wink at me. I don't think so. You're being stupid, some rational part of himself was yelling. Shut up, shut up, shut up. But the words were out and he knew he'd only look stupid as well as rude if he tried to recall them now. He tried to put an arch of civility into his tone as he added, Good day to you, sir. I regret that we couldn't do business together. 
The ship's agent looked both insulted and worried. Wait, he exclaimed almost angrily. Wait. And the man says, let's not be too hasty. Yeah. So obviously, Brashen did the right thing by calling his bluff there because the agent probably didn't have many other good prospects. Right. Yeah. This position. It's I think my theory is nobody else has really applied for this role at all. And so obviously they're going to hire Brashen. They just don't want to tell him that. And he wants to be able to get the lowest price possible for Brashen. Yeah. And Brashen is trying to avoid some things that this man is suggesting, saying, oh, I'll speed up the process, you know? I'll, I'll talk to the Reaper's man today. If he says it's all square with you, then we'll pay you the same wages you had he, uh, had there. That's fair. And Brashen's like, no, it's not fair. Having adopted a hard-nosed stance, he had no choice but to stick with it, and he didn't really want the agent to chat with anyone from the Reaper. Basically saying, on the Reaper, I was a third. On the Spring Eve, I'll be the first. In charge of the whole crew's prosperity and how everything does. Liable for all of those mistakes. And yes, the Reaper is a... uh, Smaller vessel. Well, the Reaper is a bigger ship. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, and the the Spring Eve may be a smaller vessel, but it's a bigger job, he says. So he's just negotiating at this point, like, I am going to be paid what the previous mate was paid. And the agent's like, but he had years of experience. And Brashen once again chimes in, I've also had years of experience. Pay me what you paid the last man. If you made money with him, I'll guarantee you'll make just as much with me. So if the agent is in the same position, is in the position that we're saying he is in, he's kind of backed into a corner. So the agent says, yeah, you have the arrogance of a good mate. Fine. All right. Come ready to sail at mate's wages. But I warn you, if you show badly, the captain will put you off at the first port of call. And Brashen's like, okay, now's the time to offer a little bit of compromise, give a little bit of pride back, but also gain something for me and say, I'll go to the ship right now. I'll, I want to get a you know, lay of the land. I want to get a feel for the crew and the ship itself. If the captain doesn't like me after this day, he can let me walk. How about that? Plus, it gets, you know, the agent gets to tell the captain, yeah, I've hired this on this guy. He's going to be on there for a day. And if you don't like him, let him walk. But also, uh, it gets Brash in a place to sleep. Yes. <laughs> and something to eat tonight. What he wanted. So the agent says, that's fair, you know, with where it's tied up. And he's like, yeah, of course I know it's tied up. Good day. He's walking outside. He's feeling, again, mirroring Althea's point of view, feeling with a little bit of purpose. He's like, okay, good. Something secured. <laughs> right. And he goes to the pile of hay he was sleeping in the night before and had hidden his sea bag in and finds that it's still there along with all of his sindin that he has left. Yeah, dwindling, but it would last because he's not going to use it on duty, right? That's what he says. <laughs> he never used Sindon on duty. Like as not, he'd set it aside and not even use it while he was aboard. After all, for the years he had been aboard the Vivacia, he hadn't used it at all. Not even when he had liberty on shore. And thinking of that Vi- Vivacia brings up a dull pain of his past, which leads him to thinking about Althea. And then says the thought of her jabbed him. He didn't even know where she was in this dirty town. Stupid and stubborn, that was him. 
there had been no reason really to stalk off like that on that night. So she'd said they didn't even know one another. That was just words. He knew better. She knew better. She knew him so well she had wanted nothing further to do with him. Another pity party here. Yes, and I feel really bad for Brashen in this moment because the thought that there's no way that Vivacia, or sorry, there's no way that Althea would want him, that it it's nothing to do with something on her end. It's obviously a fault of his, is really sad and frustrating, I guess, because he should be able to recognize that, it, I mean, I guess it was partially him, but he's not taking that as constructive criticism. He is like, no, it's because I'm not good enough and not being like, oh, here are some qualities that I could work on to be better. And maybe next time not be turned down by people that I like. Instead, he's just like, once again, I am the worst. Well, I will say that Althea didn't like tell him anything to work on. It was just like, we don't know each other. So it was a one-time thing. Let's go our ways. Right. Which like, I think she did tell him when she said, I didn't go talk to you as friends because I knew you'd want to sleep with me. And he was like, no, that's fair. No, that's not all I wanted. But also I'm going to beg you to sleep with me and then (laughs) tell you that you stink when you say no. Like mm, there are definitely things he could have worked on. (laughs) But as I as I did mention back then, the thing that does stick with them is saying that she didn't know him. And then he's like. Those were just words. I shouldn't have overreacted like I did because she knows me too well to want anything to do with me anymore. Right. And it's like, does she know him? Obviously, like from his past and stuff coming up. But yeah, I don't know. I feel like that's a fair thing to say that they don't know each other well outside of the context of the ship that they've worked together. And he's taking that to mean I have way deeper of a meaning. I don't know. It just... I feel bad for him. I really do because that's a really hard thing. And clearly this stems from a place of the horribleness that he's gone through in his life. But also he needs help. <laughs> Just like everybody else, he needs a therapy. I will say that they do know each other deeper than than that because we've talked about it from Althea's point of view where she's like, what does he know about anything I'm going through? Because he went through the same things, losing a chance at the live ship, the family live ship we'd probably had a connection with and, you know, kind of being disowned and the black sheep of your family for different reasons. But yeah. So that one person he was kind of connecting to finally is <laughs> like, no, yeah, don't want anything to do with you. So he feels abandoned once again, as he did as a child. But of course, all of that th- thinking really gets him down. So he breaks off some Sindin in his mouth and he's just to look lively while he's on board. Because half a page befo- before, yeah, he's definitely not going to use Sindin while he's on duty. Right? So but technically he's not on duty yet. Yeah, right. He's just Ugh. trying to show that he's a good man and he has an empty belly. And so the Sindin will help wake him up a little bit more. He's he's arguably in a worse place he was when he joined the Reaper because he wasn't doing Sindin regularly then. Just on Liberty after they came back from the slaughter right. islands. Like it was still bad, but at least it wasn't, I'm going to justify doing drugs on ship <laughs> sort of bad. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where Brashen is. He, he has a, a new ship he gets to sail out on. And then we end with, it would be interesting to reacquaint himself with the pirate isles. He wondered if anyone would remember him there. So first time readers, I think this is the first hint that we have Brashen talking about 
his history with pirates. Right. Yeah. And as uh, we know, he is he was forced into uh, piracy at Sword Point and nicknamed Weasel. That pops up later on. Robin Hobb must love weasels. I know. Ferrets, weasels, minks, whatever it is. <laughs> Little rats. <laughs> <laughs> Either way, it is really interesting. I think there's a potential that it was somewhat mentioned before in the very beginning when he has his nightmare about almost being eaten by a serpent. But I don't know that it says what kind of ship he was on. I think right. it's more just like a, a shady ship. It's yeah. like not a, a good ship, but that could be any ship, not necessarily a pirate ship. Right. Cause we have, you know, comparison with the Reaper. Yep. Well, we move on to Wintro now who, you know, it, it it's just been day, like the whole day, pretty much waiting in this stall after the morning. It's midday has come and gone. And he's just wondering what his tattoo looks like. He's looking around at the other slaves in this stall as well. And in his mind, it's slowly coming. The rela- realization is slowly coming to him. He's like, these people are slaves. It was somehow not shocking to see them tattooed. But he was not a slave. It was a mistake. His father was supposed to have come and rescued him. Like a bubble popping, he saw the complete illogic of this. Yesterday, their faces had been as clean as his own. Like him, they were newly come to this status. But somehow he could not yet think of himself as a slave. It was all a great mistake. So that facing of reality is something that he's had to do, and it's kind of catching up with him now. It's like, these people aren't just livestock or someone to pity. You know, these slaves are just not a, a horror that exists in the world. It's something that I have to face and they're just people like me. And that's something that this 14 year old boy has to come face to face with, which is horrific. Right. And it again goes back to the fact that he was very sheltered. Wintro didn't really get to see a lot of the world firsthand, especially because he spent most of his childhood i guess in the monastery yeah being trained to be a monk like he was sent pretty young i guess it could have only been five years but he's also 14 so like that's most of his life right it is (laughs) and yeah i just it's really hard that this is the thing that's really breaking the news to him that yeah the slaves that he was pitying before they they were people too they they weren't always a slave they weren't mm-hmm. they didn't maybe necessarily even deserve to get in here which nobody really deserves to be a slave no matter what they do but you know this idea that like some people are more deserving and like the priest in this society are trying to say that like well let's saw's will they were meant to be slaves to get away from not having to help the slaves when they need help i think it's really interesting that now Wintro is realizing that there's just corruption here. And it's kind of coming full circle from his first few chapters where we had heard Berendal saying like, hey, you, you really don't know what common people think right. out there, basically. Over the last few chapters, he's had to confront a lot of that and face it down. Right. Well, he's sitting in the stall and finally he speaks up saying, why aren't there any buyers? And that same boy from before chimes in saying, well, you must have been by the map face pens because 
they take whatever offer they can get for them almost. Skilled slaves get bought by, up by companies that rent them out. They get auctions so the companies will bid against each other. New slaves, new slaves like us, get auctioned too. It's called the mercy law. Sometimes your family or friends will buy you and then give you your freedom back. I used to think it was pretty funny. Me and my friends used to come down to the auctions and bid on new slaves just to run the money up. Watch their brothers or fathers break a sweat. Never thought I'd be here. Maybe your friends will buy you, Wintrow suggested. Why don't you shut up before I bust your teeth? The boy snarled at him, and Wintrow guessed there would be no family or friend bidding for him. He looks around and sees all the other slaves, and they're not even fighting back with their words like he said before in the previous section. Everyone's just kind of disconsolately looking at the ground and keeping to themselves. Right. And I think what's really interesting about this little snippet of conversation is we learn two things. The first is how slave slavery works and that there is technically a mercy law where your family can buy you, which we kind of already knew from the previous chapter with Wintrow, but we get a rundown of what that actually looks like and a little bit more intricacies into how the auction house works and right. why map faces don't really go to auction. They just take what they can get. So it's a little bit more world building, a little bit more understanding of what Wintro, what is happening to Wintro. But we also get a secondary thing, which is the grasp on what morality is like in Jamalia and how that is not good right now that in this city in this place it is a regular occurrence for young boys to go to the slave markets and bid up the price for slaves that want to their family members want to free yeah and that's just a funny thing that they do and that's entertainment and this kid who used to do that is like yeah i guess i never thought I would be the one that it happens to. And I think it just shows a real disconnect in the society of what slaves are and how horrible it is. And one last thing we do learn is that skilled slaves are auctioned off to companies who then rent them out, which could explain why Kyle Haven isn't, you know, able to get a lot of the slaves that he wants, the artisans and the skilled workers, things like that, because right. these companies are going to have a lot more money than the Vestrits right. to buy up their property. Yuck. Yeah. The people. So Wintrow finally has some people, some guards coming to their stall to usher them out after this auction was explained and he's kind of relieved that something, anything, is happening at this point. He hears crowd noise growing louder and louder as they're walking out to this area, and suddenly he smells spilled beer and the tantalizing smell of fatty smoked meat. There were food vendors working the crowd. Beyond the platform, Wintrow caught a glimpse of a row of tattoo stands, all quite busy. A lively market day, he thought to himself. No doubt some folk had woken up early today, looking forward to this. A day in town. Seeing friends dickering for bargains. A stroll to the auction to see what was available in slaves today. Which is crazy because this is just a farmer's market day for these people. Right. 
because of the things that we've been talking about for the past few chapters, it's culminating in Wintrow realizing this society is just so numb to the existence of slaves. People in Bingtown were talking about, you know, the Chalced culture of slaves being brought over to Jamalia, but everything is seeped in so deeply that it's just commonplace. And for people like Malta, even growing up in Bingtown where slavery is illegal, it's just commonplace of her to think about Rach as a slave. And like, that's just what slaves do for these young people growing up in this city. It's, Oh, it's awful. Yeah. And it's really interesting, especially because we have at the very beginning, Althea looking down on Kyle for his history and his Chalcedian blood as though that's way worse than what she is. And it turns out that the people they're part of are just as bad. Yeah, it's not the blood. It's how, what culture you were raised in. Yeah, and that's... What your values are. And this culture's values are obviously changing to be closer to that of Chalced. And it's even more sad because like with the boy talking about how he was regularly going to this and jacking up the prices with his friends, we're also seeing that the sale of people as slaves is treated worse than you would treat the sale of livestock. Like livestock are kept in pens and it's not a big event. Whereas here it's a big show. There are people sitting around drinking beer, eating meats, stalls with food. This is a fun, jovial thing. People are laughing and enjoying themselves. And it people are on the other end getting sold as property. It's not, it's not a fun thing that you should be enjoying your day at the market with. It's, it's horrific. And I can't believe that we're seeing this little tidbit of that and knowing that it's, it's like that all the time. Yeah. This isn't a special day. This is just any other day. And that's just how people are. And so with this lively market day, some buyers go up to the platform where all of the coffle of slaves is and start shouting questions, which Wintrow does get asked a few and he answers his age is 14 that he's worked with, um, orchards. He could do stained glass. He was trained to be a priest and he can read, write and figure. And he's been a ship's boy. He kind of contemplates in his head, like, I know people who are skilled get better treatment, so I might as well make the best of it. Might as well try to get the best treatment I can. So he lists out his skills, what he can do. Of course, the buyers are like, yeah, sure, right. He's too full of himself. He's going to be really hard to train. So moving on. And they're pulled off. And the bidding starts on a woman. So this woman is pulled forward. We have a bid from the crowd from like her daughter or something like that. And his heart is breaking because the woman who is a slave cannot look up out of, you know, fear or maybe even out of hope. And his heart is breaking as he's scanning the crowd. And then it does a flip in his chest instead because he catches a glimpse of his father. Kyle was discussing something with a man behind him. Father, he cries out, and Kyle Haven's head turns to the platform in disbelief. He saw Torg beside him, his hand going to his mouth as if in amazement, mimicking his astonishment very well. One of the handlers thudded Wintrow in the ribs with his stick. Be still, wait your turn. He scarcely feels the blow or hears the words. 
All he had eyes for were his father's face looking up at him. He stared down at his father and prayed to Saw. Neither his mind nor his lips shaped any words. It was a simple plea for mercy. He saw his father turn to Torg for a hasty conference of some sort. He wondered if this late in the day his father had any money left to spend. But he must, or he would have taken what he'd bought and gone back to the ship. Wintrow tried to smile hopefully, but he could not quite remember how. What was his father feeling just now? Anger? Relief? Shame? Pity? It didn't matter, Wintrow decided. His father could look at him and not buy him. Could he? Could he not buy him? After all, what would his mother say? Nothing, if she wasn't told, Wintrow suddenly realized. Nothing at all, if all she knew was that her son had run away in Jamelia City. So Wintrow is <laughs> of very mixed emotions when he sees Kyle in the crowd. Obviously, hope is on his face, but he's like, it's so late in the day. Is he going to have money enough to buy me? And then he has the thought of, but what would his mother say if if Kyle doesn't buy me? Like, he, he can't help but not buy me, right? Like, he has to if he has money. And then he has the actual thought that his father could skip buying him and say, oh, he just ran away in Jamelia City. Right. Oof. Big it's, oof. <laughs> yeah, the fact that Kyle has been such a bad father to his son that that is a real thought that his son has is not great. It's not a good time. <laughs> oh, yeah. Ugh, it's really sad. And, I mean, for his part, he does look shocked to see him, and he is conferring with Torg. So it's clear... He didn't expect it. Yeah. It's and clear, Torg is a pretty good actor, we learn. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> wow. More and more things he and I have in common. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I do not want to be Torg. <laughs> Oof. Yikes. Anyway, it's... But, I mean, for Kyle, to Kyle's credit, he isn't letting this go further. He is going to buy Wintrow. Right, yeah. 100%. But it is Wintrow's turn now, so he gets to f figure out. Once again, Wintrow cries out to the crowd, you know, Father, please. And slowly, Kyle Haven lifts his arm and says, Five shards for the boy. One bought a bowl of soup for five copper shards, and the crowd had a general laugh at that insulting bid. So this is like... I mean, if I'm operating in decimal system in, you know, a 10... A base 10. Right. It's half of a copper is five copper shards. Right. Ooh. <laughs> Yikes. Uh, not great. Not great. Also makes me think that the way that they do business or their like currency here are little like rectangular blocks in different metals. Yeah, maybe. And like they literally cut shards of those like more like coins then yeah, yeah. but not but not round shape just right like, yeah yeah maybe yeah. like square coins yeah so i thought i mean it gives me a good picture of what it looks like which is the first <laughs> we don't know anything else about the or, rest of the currency in this world but hey i i kind of had my instead of blocks because that would be hard to carry around i was thinking like they're flat rectangles themselves and the shards are just long thin strips of copper basically yeah that's what i meant oh, okay <laughs> Sorry, I said a block. I meant a thin. Ah, okay, okay, okay. A thin rectangle. Yeah. Gotcha. And I mean, 
maybe that's how it used to be. And now they still call it a shard, but it's a coin. Right. But who knows? Who knows? (laughs) So the bid is obviously extremely low, but a voice from the crowd says, which is the boy that can read, write, and figure? So this is where we see Wintrow's honesty and his trying to get better treatment for himself in case his father wasn't there kind of backfires a little bit. So it's, this is the boy. This is the one who can do all those things. The guard also, you know, pipes up and says he was in training to be a priest and says he can work stained glass too. This final claim in such an apparently young boy put the others in doubt. A full copper, someone laughingly bid too. Everyone is in disbelief that he can work stained glass. And also, when he answered his age before as 14, the buyer who asked him that question said, oh, I would have figured him for 12. So he does look very young. I just want to know why people are surprised he knows how to do stained glass. Like, Or is it that they don't believe he was in training to be a priest? Is it... The idea that a saw's priest would be here. I don't understand the disbelief that comes from this comment every time. It really they, confuses me. They probably have a lot of people who say like, I can do skilled work. Mm, Treat me to, well, you know. Right. But like, if this person was trained to be a priest and is in priest's robes right now, wouldn't that be a pretty good sign that he probably was skilled at some point? You know what I mean? Maybe, but not everyone has the aptitude to do artwork like that yeah you know? i suppose that's fair that was something that wintro is particularly good at yes but winter is also a special case i think mm, that's fair i guess anyway that was just something that i found odd when reading this yeah eventually the bid goes up to two silvers and he learns later that that was still a low bid for a new and unpromising slave but it was within the realm of acceptability so the auctioneer is pretty happy that's a good starting place now all right two silvers let's start he's uh he's a useful lad bound to get bigger as he can't get smaller attractable trainable boy do i hear three and eventually the bids shoot up to five silvers before the real buyers began shaking their heads and turning aside to examine other waiting merchandise there are boys at the edge you know sending out uh bids as we learned earlier in the Wintro section, a, co- a group of young boys are sending out bids to raise the price higher. And eventually, Torg is sent to stand beside them and scowled at them. And Wintro clearly saw him offer them a handful of coins to leave off their game. So he figures out, oh, yeah, so these boys do that and then they get paid off and leave. Right. So the price has been driven higher. And eventually, his father buys him for seven silvers and five whole coppers. He was unfastened and led to the bottom by his chain. At the bottom of the steps, he was turned over to Torg. His father had not even come forward to receive him. A tide of uneasiness arose in Wintro, who holds out his wrists for Torg to, you know, unclasp. But Torg just ignores that and grabs him by the chains and leads him on. And he also, the very first thing he says, Torg says to Wintro is stained glass, eh? Again, like Torg of all people should know that he's not making that up. Like That is probably something he can do, <laughs> but maybe it's too girly. I don't know. Like I, in Torg's eyes, I could see Torg thinking anything Winter does is bad. So true. Who knows? But 
Wintro clearly feels a little bit more comfortable. Things are starting to go back to normal. His dad's going to give him his freedom. It's going to be fine. It, it had to get to this point, but you know what? We're here. And instead, <laughs> something worse happens. Yeah, so Torg is just grinning. <laughs> yes. And he demands that Torg takes the chains off of his arms. And Torg says, why? So you can run again? And refuses. And... Then Wintrow accuses him and says, you didn't tell my father I was there, did you? And Torg says, I don't know what you were talking about. Were I you, I would be grateful that your father happened to stay at the auction this long and saw you and bought you. We sail tomorrow, you know, got our full load. He was just thinking to pick up a few last minute bargains, got you instead. Wintrow shut up. He debated the wisdom of telling his father what Torg had done. Would it sound like he was whining? Would his father even believe him? And that's heartbreaking. Right. Yeah. The relationship has just gone too far at this point. And it makes me so upset because I think Woodrow should tell him anyway. And I don't think he ever does. Because at this point, he's like, why would it matter? His father would see his whining. But at the same time, Windrow has never lied. To his father, even when his father said, you're just whining. Right. And I think his dad would know that. And I very much want him to tell his father because I kind of feel like it would be payback for what we learned. The real reason that Torg let it go this far is as they get up to the slaver's block to get tattooed. Yeah. So Wintro sees his father in a crowd, says, I want to talk to him. And Torg says, no. No, I don't think so. He doesn't want to speak to you either. In fact, I doubt he thinks you'd make a good first mate anymore when he gives the captaincy over to Gantry. I think he fancies me for that job now. He uttered this with great satisfaction, as if he expected Wintrow to be astounded by it. And that's all it was for Torque. That was the position of power that he wanted. He couldn't believe that Wintrow was going to be handed this thing when he didn't even want it. Torg thought that he was the better man for it. In... One of the few things that Torg and I agree is that nepotism is bad. However, that is where our likeness stops because I would not sell someone as a slave over nepotism. (laughs) And I think this is horrible. Like, obviously, Torg had a problem with the fact that Wintrow hasn't earned the spot. And you would think that based off of the knowledge that his father doesn't care about him at all would be a pretty good indicator that Winter probably still isn't going to get the position. Although who knows, maybe Kyle Haven would feel disgraced if his son didn't at least get first, but by marking him as a slave, this takes away his value in a way as a person. And at least it will outwardly. And how could Kyle Haven put a slave as the first mate? And so he is just trying to ensure that he for sure has a leg up into this position. Right. And it's disgusting. Yeah. And so he drags him over to the tattooist block here, puts him into the, the same harness that he was before. And Wintro is tattooed for the second time this chapter, the tattooist looks up and says, Kyle Haven's Mark. Evidently they had been doing a lot of business. Not this one, Torg said, to Wintrow's instant and vast relief. He supposed there was some freedom trinket or sign to purchase here. 
His father would not be happy about that extra expense either. Wintrow was already wondering if there were not some way to gently abrade or bleach the new tattoo from his face. Painful as that would be, it would be far better than to wear this sign on his face for the rest of his life. The sooner he put this misadventure behind him, the better. He'd already decided that when his father did decide to speak with him, Wintrow would give him an honest promise to remain aboard the ship and serve him well to the end of his 15th year. Perhaps it was time he accepted the role of Saw's will had placed him in. Perhaps this was supposed to be his opportunity to reconcile with his father. The priesthood, after all, was not a place, but an attitude. He could find a way to continue his studies aboard the Vivacia. And Vivacia herself was something to look forward to, he found. A small smile began to dawn on his face as he thought of her. Somehow, he'd have to make up to, to her for his desertion. He'd have to convince her that... Tor grabbed him by the back of his hair and forced his head down into the collar. The tattooist snubbed it tight. And Torg holds up a something that Wintrow can't see and says, Mark him with a sign like this earring. He's going to be ship's property. Bet it's the first time in the history of Jamelia City that a live ship bought a slave of her own. And so he's marked with Vivacia's mark. Visage. Uh, visage, yeah. On uh, command from Kyle, but egged on, as we learn later, by Torg. Right. Kyle is kind of angry that... He let Torg convince him in his moment of anger to do that to Wintrow. Yeah, this is not great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just say the least. <laughs> it's, um, slavery is not great. <laughs> <laughs> you can quote me on that. Um, <laughs> but it's it's just like one bad thing after another. It's just piling up for Wintrow. He can't catch a break. And his father isn't really any help in that department either because instead of being like, okay, that's enough. He is in a place where he's allowed to let his anger be stoked. And Wintrow is given another tattoo. Yeah. And it's another wedge between Vivacia and Wintrow too. Right. And that's so frustrating because here we see Wintrow's basically willing. He's going to come back and he's going to work hard. And I think it's a little naive of him still to think, oh, I'll tell my dad I'll work to him and work for him willingly until I'm 15 and think that that's enough for Kyle Haven. His dad's not going to like that answer any more than any other answer he's given up until now. But at least it shows sign that he is willing to work on the ship now and that's taken away. And it's... Yeah, just bad. Yeah. Horrible and icky and gross. Per usual, I think, with these chapters sometimes. <laughs> well, that's kind of the last up-close look at the slave market that we have to see in this book, at least. Right. And uh, the the last time that Althea is kind of on her own, I think. She yeah. heads back to Bingtown. As we learn in the next chapter, as herself, Ophelia kind of tattles, I think. Yeah, I think you're <laughs> is right. what I remember. But yeah, it's definitely a lot of tumultuous times for everyone, a lot of change. And, you know, some of it better for others. Yeah. And Canada's coming for Vivacia. Yeah. He's almost there. I'm so excited to have that happen because I feel like that is such an interesting point with how live ships work. And so I'm like really excited to get there to be able to dissect how that 
happens and how his seductions quote unquote work. (laughs) Um, But I think it's really interesting that we do have this coming up that this is, I think it's pretty downhill from here. I don't think a lot of the book, obviously we're on book one of three. And so it's not going to end in a good place. Right. So I don't know, but it's great because we're almost to the end of this book. That's crazy. Yeah, it is kind of crazy. A few more chapters, though. So, thank you so much for tuning in to this one. If you have any thoughts, please relay those to us. You can email us at isfitshappy at gmail.com or you can message us or comment on any of our posts. Uh, is Fitz Happy at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And we also have a YouTube channel as well where these episodes are getting posted. So thank you so much for... Um, subscribing, following, commenting, reviewing, uh, sharing with your friends and family. We love everyone who has been added to our community here. Thank you so much for tuning in. See you next week. All right. Now we're going to get into some of the things you guys have talk to us about and sent in as thoughts, questions, and ideas. I think we're going to start with some from Facebook from Ellen. And it's regarding how Kenneth thinks that Edda is useful as a woman. I think this is a really interesting topic. This is about the previous chapter with kind of Kenneth's comment on how um, I guess women can be useful and it was so gross and weird. Um, But it's really interesting because Ellen brings in the perspective that maybe if you get over how gross it is, (laughs) it's um, not necessarily about him thinking a woman has found their place as a woman. It's more of Kenneth is very self-sufficient and doesn't like to rely on anyone for help. And so it's admitting to himself that this person is not a burden or a nuisance or a liability and maybe some sort of budding of trust that he can actually accept help from this person, which is actually really big. And I kind of like that. I think I think he, he needs a way to uh, ways to get there yet though. Yes. Um, maybe that's the start of the feeling, but it's not really apparent in his point of view fully yet. Right. But I do like it. I like that perspective because it's not one that I was really bringing to the read. And so it's always good to get a less harsh <laughs> version. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> and really be like, you know what, actually I could cut this character some slack because there are not many other places you can with Kenneth cut slack. So this is, I, I thought a really interesting idea put forward and I really like it. There's also a question that Ellen raises separately that has nothing to do with Kenneth and is more just a general question about how serpents work and how live ships and live ships and how serpents and dragons have genders and how they are distinctly certain genders. And then we have live ships where, which are the cocoons of dragons that are then carved into gendered figureheads. And so it's this really interesting question of, was it just plain luck that made all of the genders correct? Or what do you think happens? Mm -hmm. Do you think there is anything where there is some, a serpent or a cocoon that is carved into the wrong gender? And I think that's a really interesting thing to think about. 
Yeah, Ellen specifically asks, what if a female cocoon had been carved into a male figurehead or vice versa? What if Paragon's two cocoons had been of different genders? Do people's expectations still form the ship's feeling of gender? So, like, there, there's a lot of different thoughts there, and Ellen does propose something in there, which I think I heavily agree with, is that the dragon's natural magic or skill influences the people who are working on it. Right. Which I feel comes from a little bit of textual evidence, not much, but a little bit of Paragon after Amber is carving Paragon's new face and eyes. Paragon opens his eyes and it, they are like bright blue, which is Kenneth's eyes and his mother's eyes. And Amber is kind of upset because they're supposed to be dark brown or whatever they are, right. whatever Fitz's are. So I feel like there's some sort of image that is taken that the dragon's or the cocoons, or that sense of being shapes themselves. Maybe not much, but I think there is some influence there. Yeah, I really think it's an interesting thought process, especially because if you think about it, there are men carved as figureheads, which maybe I'm wrong. I am not a ship person. I don't spend a lot of time around ships. I don't have a knowledge of the history of ships and their figureheads, but I feel like it it's more normal to have a female figurehead of some sort. And so the fact that they even have a multitude of both genders is kind of surprising to me. So maybe that is part of it, that they are drawn the sculptor kind of feels inspiration towards one area or the other. We know that people that are around the old elderling cities get lost in the memories, so to speak. So I don't think it would be outside of the realm of possibility that some version of that happens and that they are directed by the wood itself as to what gender to put on. Yeah. Although I guess we don't know. We only ever get to see points of views from a few live ships and none of them seem to have any gender problems or dysphoria. The only thing I can think of if that happened, if like a cocoon of one gender was carved into something that they didn't see as themselves, as a sense of themselves, would maybe bring up more feelings of who am I and maybe bring forward the dragon memories sooner. That's the only thing I could think of maybe happening. Which, I mean, would explain why some of the ships were way more willing to become dragons in the later series where they just don't feel comfortable anymore in the shape that they are. Maybe that's part of it. We don't know. Ophelia is one of the few who doesn't, at least right away. And I think that's because she's so old and established. Right. So I think that has to do with it as well, the age. True. And I, I I don't know. It's it's such a hard topic because obviously I don't think, for, to my knowledge, Robin Hobb has not talked on this subject at all. And so we're really just stipulating with what very little textual evidence we have. And we are not ep- experts on the topics right. at all. So, it's an interesting conversation though to bring it, up yeah. in terms of live ships. Yeah, And it is a really interesting thing to think about going forward too, just to see if we can pick it pick up anything I, probably not because i don't think robin hobb really thought about that aspect right which we'll forgive her for because <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot to think about when building a world and books and characters and i think letting a few things slip by is fine yeah but especially with like just finishing thoughts on it from from my end with the ship builders and the carvers 
probably being Rainwild folk, right? Mm -hmm. Living around, growing up around an elderly city leaves them susceptible to influence from those dragons. Obviously, they have been physically influenced, so I think they're open and probably influenced while creating the ship. So that's my thought. I would agree with that. So thank you, Ellen, so much for writing in and having some very interesting things to make us think about. Next, I'm going to move on to an email that we got from Melissa. And Melissa sent an email about Malta, our everybody's least favorite, (laughs) at least everybody that's ever written in. So if you like Malta, (laughs) please feel free to write in and tell us why. Maybe we will have a change of hearts. Probably not. But Melissa does have a little bit of a softening of Malta, if you will, in this email. She, she, Melissa does preface this by saying that she is super frustrating and I've never liked her even after she is redeemed, quote unquote, sorry, not sorry. But let's talk about internalized misogyny, absent parents and craving attention and taking it where you can get it. So basically, same as us in some cases, we're still getting there with Malta, but we don't like this person. And then slowly kind of just diving into their character a little bit more, trying to learn more about them and why they are the way they are. Right. And I think this is a really good way to make Malta a little bit more sympathetic because I know she is so dislikable. But Melissa brings forward the idea that when Malta is being raised, she's being raised by kind of two absent parents. Kefria isn't really involved in her life, right? Right. And Kyle can't be because he works on a ship for a living so he is gone and so i'm sure most of the time that she gets attention and joy and fun new things is when her dad comes back and so er, melissa points out that that would influence how you would put somebody on a pedestal and how you see that as an amazing person she's not really regularly getting attention that we can tell so of course when somebody comes in her father and is constantly praising her constantly giving her gifts constantly giving her the attention that she is craving then of course she's going to look up to that person and want that and think that that person's worldview is correct especially if the other parent kefria is so disengaged and disinterested in connecting with her daughter on a personal level in any sort of meaningful way. Seeing Kefria being, as Melissa describes it, mousy and just kind of in general very passive while Malta is very opinionated, headstrong, and very curious about things doesn't, you know, paint the best picture in a young Malta's head. So when she sees her father coming back and everyone's attitude and mood changes a bit then yeah oh men can make things go around he is the one to answer to he's the only important one and that's why she kind of worships kyle and doesn't care about what kefria thinks and not only does she miss out on the mother connection mother-daughter connection but she's also missing out on the connection with her grandmother as another potential strong female role model her grandmother is also disinterested let's let's be fair ronica is a strong female role model but not a familial (laughs) relationship role model like she she can't relate to a young daughter it's somebody that 
um, somebody outside the family could be like, wow, Ronica is a great matriarch of this family. She's doing a lot of work, strong work, keeping the family together. But everyone inside the family is like, Ronica doesn't hug people. She yeah. doesn't talk to you one-on-one. She's about business. And Malta just sees her at the, as this like imposing figure to overcome eventually because right. there's, there's no, no connection. Yeah, there's no spending time with her. There's no getting to know each other. There's no... And it's not to say that there is only the only sort of connection you can have with a parent figure has to be touchy feely, lovey dovey. That's not how everybody operates. That's not necessarily true, but you got to have some sort of connection. You have to have attention in general. And Kefria and Ronica just don't really give that to her. Yeah. For this last part, Melissa kind of, or for this part, excuse me, Melissa kind of wraps up this whole sentiment, basically saying when Kyle is home, she feels loved, accepted, you know, cared for, And when Kyle leaves, Ronica is feeling grouchy because she's trying to keep the household together after those visits. Kefria goes back to being passive and disinterested and her life goes back to being boring. So who wouldn't look forward to having Kyle home? It's just the behind the scenes section, the day-to-day life is just so miserable without her father there. Right. And then this goes into a little bit deeper of a layer in explaining why maybe this helps her have that internalized misogyny because Kyle is the only connection that she really has from a parent and the fun that she's getting from a parent. This makes it easier to agree with him. And she obviously can pick up on the signs that her aunt Althea is an odd bad <laughs> and troublesome and her mom isn't anything to be worried about and her grandma is crazy and even Bingtown society is telling her that the way that their family is doing things is the wrong way this is not how things need to be and so obviously she's going to try to continue to win that affection from her father by being a good quote-unquote woman she's going to look down on other women because she knows there, she can't trust women. There is no woman to look up to. There isn't really any reason for her to want to be friends with women. Yeah, because she sees men as the movers and shakers. So, as Melissa says, the people that can get things done. Right. And so, of course, she then thinks once she's now going through puberty and starting to have romantic feelings for men and boys that... This is now the chance to escape from her boring, horrible life where everything's wrong and get with a man who can change all that. The man is going to change it. With that previous section, a man in her life makes things more interesting and exciting, as we saw historically with Kyle coming home from the ship, if it all tracks together like that. Right. And so, of course, she's going to think men make life more interesting. Women are boring. Women are not necessary. It's all about the men. And I think that is a really good way to explain kind of who Malta is yeah. in a way that's more sympathetic. And Malsa, uh, excuse me, Malsa, <laughs> I mixed the two names together. Melissa also says that Malta saw how she can manipulate her father as she were, as she was growing up. And now that she is this age, she's like, I, I can try to do this on other men my own age. Right. And that's where she's kind of left off in the series. Yeah. she's, as Melissa says, a little minx. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think it's really interesting. So I want to say thank you to Melissa for bringing that viewpoint forward and for 
having a version of Malta that is sympathetic and looking at it through that lens, it does make a lot more sense when you think about it that way. And I think sometimes of me personally, when I'm reading these books, I get so caught up in how frustrating a character is. I can't do the deeper dive. I can't look into why they're being that frustrating because they're just especially frustrating. And I think Malta (laughs) is like the peak of that sort of character for me because I just, Malta is my overall least favorite character. I know a Malta in real life and I just can't help but like project that onto Malta, which is not perfect, but, but I'm human. So that's my own thing. And so I think that also makes me a little bit more harsher to Malta than I would be towards other characters and a little less forgiving. Yeah. So great insight. Thank you so much, Melissa. Yeah. I really like that. And I really do like that the explanation of the internalized misogyny there. There's one last thing I'll sneak in before we end this section. Uh, Kate sent us a message on Instagram. Thank you so much for putting this in there that I was not crazy. Valette is the (laughs) British pronunciation and valet is the American pronunciation. So. Okay. But are you British? (laughs) No, but it means I'm not going crazy. And I have heard that somewhere. That's fair. That's fair. (laughs) But it also makes me not crazy because I've only ever heard it the other way, so. Well, obviously, you're not cultured enough. I don't Pushes do... glasses up my nose. <laughs> Tips the fedora. Um, <laughs> obviously, I don't do audiobooks because I think that'd be where you would hear it more. I actually have only listened to one audiobook, I think, in my <gasps> life, so. Wow, okay. So I've read or listened to more audiobooks than you. Yeah. Wild things we're discovering on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Melissa. And then finally, we had a really interesting kind of out of place comment, Um, not out of place in this section of the world, I guess, would be a better way to describe it. But we had a listener write in and ask about six duchies and their, the way that they handle wit and skill which I think is really interesting and something we haven't really got to talk about in a while. Yeah, so Ant uh, messaged us basically asking the origin of the discrimination against wit. Now, I'll preface this. Neither Emma nor I have read the Piebald Prince short story that Robin Hobb has produced. So this might have some factual, you know errors in it or we'll just try to dance around what we actually do know i believe that everything is kind of hinted at that's where it starts but ant does chime in with a very very interesting theory wondering if that maybe one of the farseer kings started spreading hate for the wit because he knew that the stone dragons required blood and wit to awaken and so he was afraid that the old blood would use them in an uprising because he just happened to be a paranoid king like the Mad King from Game of Thrones. So super interesting theory uh, from everything that I always assumed without reading that short story again is that particular story is where the depth of the bad feeling came from, but very interesting. I think I did never think that was a start. Again, I have not read the story, but I always thought that was more of like a propaganda piece where like, something unfortunate happened and so we're gonna use that to mark all of a different people as bad 
because we do know at some point witted people were living side by side with regular people in the society. It was like another hedge magic. It wasn't that big of a deal. And at some point that switched. So it is a really interesting thing that it is now horrible. And I do like the idea that a king was like, I'm going to make sure nobody can uh, can hurt us. I'm going to, these witted people are getting too much power. I'm going to take that away. And I, I don't know. I like that. I think it's really yeah. interesting. Although it is kind of shooting yourself in the foot for further generations, but <laughs> whatever. The, uh, the, the final part of Anne's message here is talking about something that actually Emma and I have brought up before and discussed. It's kind of at least one of my favorite theories. And I just hold it in my head as like, this is knowledge. It's not proven in the books at all. It's still just a theory. It's your head cannon. It is my head cannon. But Ant says that they have a suspicion that elderling slash dragon magic is a combination of wit and skill. Through generations and outbreeding with uh, humans, it developed into two separate but connected magics. And when it's combined, it's very similar to dragon magic. And that's why Fitz seems to feel elderling magic more than others do. I, I definitely agree with this take. For most of it, there are some things in there that I don't agree with. And I think I've read a uh, a Robin Hobb Ask Me Anything section on Reddit where she says that the elderling magic is, the wit is not elderling magic at all. So I think it's just dragons that have that combination. And again, it's something that we've discussed, something similar to both skill and wit. And I think they've kind of, that's that's the start of all of the magics of the world. Yeah, I think I like the idea that they're connected and they used to be kind of one magic. I think that then discounts the idea that a king made the propaganda for wit people to be bad because I think... Why? Why would that discount it? So here's my thought. If they originally used to be combined and it's generations of it being like of mixing with regular humans to get it to be something different. I'm wondering if that means that the original King that went and got the elderlings the first time, the magic that he used was just his version of the skill. And so then Mm. that skill was enough because it was still intermingled. And then you wouldn't know going back further or like, going forward into the future, that king wouldn't know you needed the wit to do it because nobody knew how elderling magic was done. And we know that it's been a really long time since the last king came with elderlings. So it's possible. Lots of generations. But I have a feeling that the magic split before elderling cities were a big thing. Because if elderling magic is not the wit because they didn't, exhibit anything like that and robin Hobbs says it was not wit which i mean could be vague but <laughs> i'll take that as they didn't have the ability to communicate with animals then that split of the magic and the breeding out into different peoples the skill and the wit separately into humanoid people happened before six duchies was a thing mm, okay so i think that it still could be possible with the discrimination against witted people and old blood because of a paranoid king could still happen if that magic was split way beforehand. 
Yeah, I guess it's really hard to tell. Yeah, obviously this is all speculation. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) we'll never know for sure. I'm sure, but cool thoughts. Yeah, I like the idea. I think it's fun. So thank you so much, Ant, for writing that in, and thank you to everyone else who wrote in. We always enjoy hearing from you guys, and we especially loved the responses to last week's Valentine's Day post. Um, so happy Valentine's day from us to you with (laughs) our cute little Valentine's we did with the characters. Um, my very favorite comment was from someone saying that they wanted one with a picture of me on it saying you're very interesting to me. Uh, that made me laugh a lot and realize how much I say, I think it's very interesting. I have to say it at least three times an episode, but (laughs) I don't edit the sound. Luke does. So if I do something repetitively, it doesn't bother me. I don't notice. (laughs) And at some point, everything's just kind of sounds to me. So I just (laughs) go through. But I thought that was really cute. So thank you guys. And I'm glad you guys liked it. It was just a really fun, lame thing to do. Um, Also, another housekeeping note, I did create a TikTok account for us. I'm going to try to post on there every once in a while. Not as regularly as any other of our just social media inspiration strikes. Yeah. But I just thought we'd put that out there. We do have a TikTok. It's fits happy just like everything else. And yeah. We're enjoying doing this for you guys and we hope you guys are still enjoying hearing our content. <laughs> See you next week. Bye.